Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the sixth episode in this new season of Between the Lines. My name is Martin Gregg and this is my conversation with Hugh McDonald about the sports writing legend Hugh McIlvanny, specifically his legendary piece on Welsh boxer Johnny Owen. This is a fascinating chat, not least because Hugh brings a personal element to it. The two men formed a strong friendship towards the end of McIlvanny's life and Hugh delivered a eulogy at his old friend's memorial service. So Hugh, as part of this new series of Between the Lines, I've asked you to pick your favourite Hugh McIlvanny piece of all the pieces over the years. Why did you go for Johnny Owen? First of all, because he told me to. Um, the voice from uh, the grave. Uh, when Hugh knew he was going to die, we, we were having a conversation about what I could be saying at his memorial service, and he, he was very keen to, to talk about his best pieces. And uh, he mentioned uh, ones that we all know, the Rumble in the Jungle, uh, the Jockstein obituary, and Johnny Owen. And Johnny Owen has always been uh, my favourite Michael Vanney piece. It's, it's really interesting, kind of rereading the piece and. and you write about the tone of it. You have to walk a kind of very fine line with the tone because, as you see, Johnny Owen is not dead at that point, and um, that that makes it much much harder as a journalist. When you, you, I mean, Hugh has probably got a fair idea that this guy is not going to make a recovery to a full and normal life, but he has to be so careful with how he pitches the tone all the way through. And that was the thing that got me. Um, that's probably I mean I'm sure she would have stayed up all night anyway but that's the thing that I'm sure would have exercised them as much as anything was how to to walk that very very fine line between um, this guy's life and death essentially yeah I mean one of the, the, the things that might have been sort of uh, overlooked with Hugh was how good a reporter he was for example we talked about earlier about his favourite pieces the piece he did on Hillsborough uh, where he was going along to do a match report and ended up doing one of the greatest and by greatest I mean biggest uh, news stories of the day and the Hillsborough disaster and doing it impeccably showed that he wasn't, you know, it wasn't everything to the last kind of drop of blood. He was a reporter. Um, so this would have to be turned around quickly. We talk about 10, 12 hours to, to turn it around. Some of that, uh, you would imagine, should have been spent sleeping, <laughs> uh, which obviously wasn't. The other thing to remark on the Johnny Owen piece is that we know now that the poor lad died, but Johnny Owen wasn't dead at the writing of the piece. He was in a coma at the time. So it was that great uncertainty and that great um, angst about, um, you know, just where the story was heading, although Hugh was pretty clear that, that when he says in his intro, you know, he, you know, it was taking him to the edge of death, so I think he was pretty clear where it was taking him. So that reporting thing uh, was very much in his mind. Another sort of sidebar on, on the reporting thing as well is that he embedded himself in the story. Uh, there's a piece at the end where he, he, he's there with the father before the fight, and he's there with the, the father after the fight when he has to make that terrible phone call to Merthyr 
I mean, it's interesting that he kind of writes himself into the piece because, you know, this tone of foreboding is really set firmly when he says, Yet it is a simple truth that for weeks a quiet terror had been gathering in me about this fight. Um, I mean, that that comes from the level of, of research that he's undertaken because he's embedded himself with the family. He's watching every movement that's going on and that commitment to the piece I guess comes through in those 12 to 14 hours when he sits down to write it Well the great thing about him was when, when we when we had talks about uh, and we know that having read it, not only has something terrible happened, but we're all pretty sure that something t- even more terrible and final is going to happen because Johnny Owen is going to die as a result of this yeah. he doesn't shirk away from that Yeah Crucially, though, he knows Pintor as well, and he knows that he knows boxing. He's boxing, you know. Um, Bud Schulberg, the the great writer and great boxing fan, it was taken along from the 1920s by his producer father, who was the producer at Paramount, and went on to write great screenplays. But Bud always said that Hugh was the, the journalist that knew most about boxing. All the journalists he met, he knew his boxing, so he knew what Pintor was going to bring to the ring, and he knew what Johnny was going to bring. Thing, and he knew it could be a very unequal struggle. You know, um, uh, the strength. He talks at one point as well about the, the ambience that he's going into. You know, Olympic Auditorium has got the, the atmosphere of a Guadalajara cockfight. So he's very, very good in, um, in knowing the exact scale of the task and the dangers inherent in it. I think that's an interesting point about Pintor because a British journalist travelling um, to cover a British fighter. The temptation would be to to focus on the the story of the of the British fighter to um, the exclusion of of the of the opponent, but the, the level of, of research that he brings to Pintor, I think, is, is kind of what separates someone like Michael Vanny from his peers because um, he probably knows about as much about Pintor as he does about Johnny O. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was never any narrow chauvinism about him uh, when it came to, to, to boxing or when it came even, uh, particularly when it came to, 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 to covering uh, British fighters. You know, this was what made him, um, uh, this is what made him peerless in the game. I mean, we all remember, I mean, when, when Bugner was getting talked up with the British press, as Joe Bugner's been talked up with the, the British press, uh, Hugh could be very slyly have some digs at him and, and, and make and make some brilliant comments you know the best one I ever remember you know you know when Pinter's talking about he, he Bugner's talking about how he could uh, fight um, Jesus Christ and uh, and and uh, Michael Vanny and Martin yeah but Jesus Christ has got bad hands you know uh, that that kind of thing uh, yeah, he knew his box and he, and he did his research. It was always, at his heart, you see, he was always a reporter. So he knew the value of research. He wasn't just a guy that turned up, dumped, yeah. dumped his bag and said, well, I'm taking out the broad brush here and I'm going to paint something beautiful. Yeah. This is a guy that painted in details, you know. This was a draftsman. Yeah. I mean, the whole piece, which we'll go into later, this whole piece has got a beginning, an end, and a middle. This piece is constructed. Yeah. I mean, just to return to the point about tone, um, one of one of the things that struck me was he, he strikes this kind of poignant tone, but it's not a maudlin mm. tone, right? And I just want to read out a couple of passages. In the street, in a hotel lounge, or even in his family's home on a Merthyr Tidfil housing estate, Johnny Owen is so reticent as to be almost unreachable, so desperately shy that he has turned 24 without having had a genuine date with a girl. 
There's something about his pale face with its large nose, jutting ears and uneven teeth, all set above that long skeletal frame that takes hold of the heart and makes unbearable the thought of him being badly hurt. The call that was made to Mrs Owen from the waiting room of the California hospital shortly before 7am Saturday, Mertha time, 11pm Friday in Los Angeles, had a painfully different tone. It was made by Byron Board, a public and close friend of the family, and he found her already in tears because she had heard that Johnny had been knocked out. The nightmare that had been threatening her for years had become reality. So I think, going back to the points we're making about tone, the difference between being poignant and being maudlin is, is illustrated beautifully in those paragraphs, isn't it? Absolutely, because what he does is he sticks to straight honesty, he sticks to straight reportage and observation. He doesn't add in to it. He knows that the story is good enough, so he points out these things. He, he, he paints a picture, but it's a realistic picture of, of Johnny with the big ears and the nose and the teeth of a mother, um, you know, waiting this terrible call. And, of course, it's carried all the time that he has no, he has no um, reservations about um, about boxing he has great ambivalence about boxing he's not going to say this should be banned and he's not going to say this shouldn't be banned he has like uh, he has the 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 dubiety of an intelligent man. He has the doubts about all this as an intelligent man and, and, and he actually articulates that in the piece as well. I think if you do the level of research and bring the insight that he brings to it, it means that you can, you don't have to flog certain images and certain points to death. You can you can touch on them and then move on. And um, The interesting point you made about the Guadalajara cockfight, just to, to read out that sentence, a Mexican who would be going to work in front of a screaming mob of his countrymen whose lust for blood gives a grubby Olympic auditorium the atmosphere of a Guadalajara cockfight multiplied a hundred times. Mm. That sentence, that's all you need, mm-hmm. you know, because that puts you in that auditorium. Absolutely. And it also, it, 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 what you've got to remember about his research, this is that this piece... Um, uh, that Michael Van has written has been has been like hewn from uh, uh, from from huge research. It's like the great thing about the sculptor, you know, how do you sculpt something? You know, how do you sculpt a woman? You just get a stone and chip away all the bits that don't look like a woman, uh, and, and and that's how you sculpt a woman. So like this is what he does. He's got the massive research that he would have had. Can you imagine? This piece as well, can you imagine nowadays as well the actual quotes that he's got? The actual quotes that he would have from the victor, from managers, from um, uh, from people on the periphery of the story, and he doesn't use them. He doesn't use them. He knows he's only got a certain amount of uh, words to do it, and he decides what's important. He also had a great phrase where he said that the quotes have to carry the freight. That means that they've got to be they have to they have to justify themselves with being in a story and if you look at this point this story well, there's no quotes in it at all there's just observation ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we continue with this episode of Between the Lines, I want to tell you about two books from Backpage that you might be interested in. Firstly, Pep City, The Making of a Super Team by Lou Martin and Paul Ballas, two Spanish sports writers who have been embedded with Manchester City since Pep Guardiola arrived in the summer of 2016. No other journalist has had this kind of access and the result is a behind-the-scenes account of how Guardiola's winning machine was built and what it takes to keep it on the road. This features exclusive interviews with everyone from Pep and the strategists on the board to the superstar players who won all there is to win in English football last season. And if you're interested in what the next level in the football arms race might look like, check out Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter, who has appeared in this series of Between the Lines interviewed by Neil about this book. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport and especially elite football is heading in terms of recruitment, data and optimisation, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. Pep City, the making of a super team and Astro Ball, the new way to win it all, out now from Backpage. The piece is actually one seven seven three words long. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually did a, a word count in the first two sentences. Um, the first sentence is forty seven words, um, and the second one is fifty five words, and, and that's quite that's quite long in kind of modern sports writing yeah. terms. This isn't the kind of piece that you would you would read in the in the broadsheets these days. Um, he had a very distinctive style. Mm-hmm. His sentences were frequently long, mm-hmm. but. It's quite an interesting thing he does because it's hard to write long sentences and hold the reader's attention. But my question for you was going to be what goes into a McIlvaney sentence? Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose the answer is going to be blood, sweat and tears because you've already <laughs> talked yeah, about the level um, of of intensity. Let's talk about intensity that he brings to his work. But there's a real power of... Like, I always think of these sentences are like a rolling kind of almost irrepressible force and I always kind of read them in his voice as well and it, it's almost like, and he would love this because he's a great fan, it's almost Shakespearean in the lack of almost like a sonnet and the lack of punctuation and that he just goes on and on, it, it's an interesting thing that, you know, as a, even as a sidebar you know, like all people, when I was, uh, all Scots of a certain generation when I was very young I tried to write like Malcolm Vanny and actually and later like well very quietly realised I couldn't uh, and actually changed my style completely to to, to very short simple sentences uh, because to have to carry people along with this, you have to be you have to be very 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 good. That's why he's not only admired by readers but he's really admired by his peers because they realise quite how difficult this is yeah as i mean 
the, the sentences have to be you know, that word constructed mm. we, we kind of throw it away um, when you talk about the construction mm. of a sentence um, but these were genuinely constructed and they also have a rhythm as well they're almost yes. musical they have a rhythm and they have a cadence um, uh, and so and the, the whole piece will, will, will gain in power as it goes on as well there's a whole cumulative power in the Michael Vanny piece and, and, and where do you think where do you think that comes from? Is that something innate? Is that something to do with people who are exceptionally well read, and um, that they're they're by osmosis they're soaking in um, the, the things that influence them, and then and then it's finding this expression when when the moment arrives. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was greatly informed by Shakespeare and his sports writing. That sounds very pressy and almost pretentious, but he was a great Shakespeare reader. He was a great reader of of of, uh, of great fiction, most notably uh, people like Melville uh, and he would he would see the, the the power of words and the power the concussive power of words you know that could build up you could build up a sentence you could you'd like a wave and then it would crash upon the shore and that's what his pieces did this is a great example of him building very um, sonorously and somberly from the beginning sentence to an absolute crash on the shore which is the last sentence or the last bit of it um, this piece builds in power as it goes on even though all of us all of us before we read it know what happened in that ring in Los Angeles yeah exactly <clears throat> I mean you, you touched on Hughes ambivalence about boxing um, which I think is really interesting <laughs> as well and um, you know, I've just finished reading uh, Donald McCray's book, Dark Trade, and you know, uh, to a large extent, that's the kind of personal journey of, of Don trying to come mm. to terms with um, his relationship with this extraordinarily brutal sport. Um, you know, we talked about um, the kind of long sentences that, that McIlvany became renowned for, but there's an amazing sentence later on where, where he talks about Johnny Owen going down and he said he was unconscious before he hit the canvas and his relaxed relaxed neck muscles allowed his head to thud against the boards like that almost like moved me to tears that sentence you know and, and I think that encapsulates the the sheer brutality of boxing he's not trying to um, he's not trying to make this kind of Epic or grand, or this is like another. This is one man punching another man as hard as he can in the head, and there's something there's so something so poignant about this guy's neck muscles and thud. Yeah, and he would know when the neck muscles went like how this was trouble. Right. If you see a boxer going down like that and the neck muscles go, that means that means consciousness has been lost because the guy's not bracing himself against the fall. The consciousness has been lost so dramatically. <clears throat> you could say this, this could be trouble ahead. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the, the, the fact about... I think anybody anybody who has any interest in boxing knows that you know knows the realities of it. I mean, it's full of clichés, you know, the hardest game in the world, you know, you don't... Boxing's the only sport you don't play. Nobody plays boxing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you fight. Uh, the whole thing, people talk about injuries in other sports that can be much worse than boxing. We know there's deaths in other sports. We know there's concussive injuries in other sports. But the purpose of other sports, generally, is not to inflict that on another human being. So that's that's a that's a that's a game changer. Yeah, uh, but it does, and he was aware of this. It does bring out something very noble and can bring out something yeah. very noble in people who 
in many ways, uh, whether social or economically, have been pushed into it. There's not a great list of of fighters who have come from, you know, um, shall we say, influ- influential or, 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 or big uh, financially well-off families come into boxing. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sport that finds people that need escape. Uh, so he was well aware of that, but it does... It does bring extraordinary, blunt, brutal, and stark uh, realities into focus. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see how well he reads the the sport by oh. his descriptions of it. And that's something that really chimed mm. in the uh, Don McCray dark mm. trade books as well. That he he has this, you know, incredible understanding of what's happening and. Um, but able to see things actually that are happening that quickly, as we know from our, our, our days of sports reporting, you know, it, it goes in a flash. Things in a football match can go in a flash. Never mind, you know, in a boxing ring. So it takes a bit of an expert eye to actually pick out details. And in these days as well, he wouldn't be sitting looking at a television monitor either. So I mean, the the, the middle uh, section of the piece is full of that great uh, reportage, that great observation, and that great knowledge. He's picking up what's happening in the ring, and he's picking up quickly that it's you know he's coming in with a sense of foreboding, and he's picking up quickly that this foreboding is going to be realised in something really bleak and really dramatic. There's a term terms in, in journalism that we often use intros and outros, but mm. Hugh had his own way of talking about um, those mm. two things. And can you explain a little bit about? He always says his terminology the most difficult in this game was takeoffs and landings, you know, which was the intro, uh, which is uh, the first paragraph of the story. And the outro, which is uh, the last paragraph of the story, he used to say they were the ones that caused you uh, great difficulty. This piece is brilliant in that it has a very great intro, um, uh, which you can read out briefly. It can be no consolation to those in South Wales and Los Angeles who are red-eyed with anxiety about Johnny Owen to know that the extreme depth of his own courage did as much as anything else to take him to the edge of death. That's an excellent intro, brilliant intro. Uh, I think his intro to the Rumble in the Jungle where he talks about Muhammad Ali's redemption by rolling away the stone and hitting George Foreman over the head with it is his best. But without doubt, without doubt, the intro, the outro, sorry, to, um, to, to, um, to Johnny Owen is one of the great pieces of journalistic writing. In fact, I would go as strong as to say it's one of the greatest things I've, I've read. It, 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 this sounds pretentious and a bit of hyperbole, but it ranks with me, and certainly in terms of uh, sticking my memory as to the uh, the final uh, words of the the great Pat Gatsby as we're beating on against uh, against the tide. But I'll read it to you. Uh, the last paragraph of this story reads. But our reactions are bound to be complicated by the knowledge that it was boxing that gave Johnny Owen his one positive mean of self-expression. Outside the ring, he was an audible and almost invisible personality. Inside, he became astonishingly positive and self-assured. He seemed to be more at home there than anywhere else. It is his tragedy that he found himself articulate in such a dangerous language. That's genius. Yeah. I mean, it's that final... I was just counting up the words of the last sentence I think it's four, 14 words and we've talked about the elaborate constructions of other sentences but it is his tragedy that he found himself articulate in such a dangerous language I mean that's it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it must have been a great tribute to, to Johnny Owen and his family as well that, that he was Almost commemorising a piece like this, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no consolation in this for anybody. There's a young man's died, but um, 
it became it became one of the the great boxing pieces. It was actually I think it was a memorable headline on it called "The Virgin Soldier," was the headline that was put on it, and uh, uh, it was and Johnny Owens' family who are, are still living might want to know that it was read at uh, Hugh McIlvanny's uh, memorial service by none other than Tom Courtney. Thanks to Hugh for agreeing to this interview. Follow him on Twitter at RedBlaze. That's R-E-D-B-L-A-E-S. The first five episodes of this season feature interviews with Ben Reiter, Oliver Kay, Lawrence Donegan, Andy Mitten and Daniel Gray. Finally, if you've enjoyed this, please leave a review, tell a friend, spread the word. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.